Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to a special mini-sode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Aaron, and here with me is my co-host, best friend, and anime noob, Patrick. What's up, everyone? Earlier this year in our Facebook group, many of our listeners committed to some sort of film challenge for the year. Well, Patrick, having not seen much anime, and knowing how highly regarded of a genre it is for me, decided that he wanted to educate himself. And that led us to here. Yeah, when the year started, there were a lot of challenges going out. And I saw that there were a lot of directors that I could have covered. Steven Spielberg was one of them. Um, and I I thought about initially doing a Miyazaki challenge because that would have satisfied my anime and director challenge in one fell swoop. And as I was thinking about it, I decided if I'm going to understand anime, if I'm going to appreciate it, I can't just look at one director. and fleshing out more ideas, I decided that I not only wanted to cover multiple directors, I wanted to cover multiple years to see how anime really evolves over the course of a 20-year period. And it was going to start like with one uh, one month, excuse me, one a month over the course of the year. But then I decided it would be kind of fun to dedicate this to maybe more of a summer series. So Hopefully, I'll be watching one maybe once every week or two and throwing in a little capsule review on the blog uh, on our website. So be looking for that. And so I have about a dozen movies in the queue, ranging from the late 80s to the last few years. I think the last one that I have tagged uh, came out in 2013. And like I said, there's going to be a breadth of directors. But one thing I'm doing is intentionally avoiding popular movies and directors. So I'm not covering things like Ghost in the Shell or Akira, and I'm intentionally avoiding any Miyazaki films. I've already seen a few of those, have really enjoyed them, but I want to get variety. And so tonight's episode is really kind of the kickoff of this summer series for me with Grave of the Fireflies. Well, I wouldn't say that you're Picking all unpopular movies because many of your movies are the most popular and the highest regarded. Right. But when I I've rattled these off to several people and they say, Well, I recognize three of those. Why haven't you why aren't you doing any Miyazaki or okay, yeah. know, that kind of thing? So I know what you're saying. If you're gonna introduce somebody to anime, Miyazaki's like the staple. He is. And so for that reason, I wanted to say everybody loves Miyazaki. I want to explore other directors that either were inspired by him or that he inspired. And um, having that kind of longevity over the course of the last 20, 25 years, I hope to see kind of a progression and maybe write about that in each of the each of the reviews. Yeah, that's going to be pretty interesting. And anytime you want to throw a mini soda up about them, you just let <laughs> me know. I am going to be taking this journey with Patrick listeners, even for the movies that I've already seen, which actually are maybe... I don't know, a third of them, I guess, is when we, okay. went over the, when we went over the list. So I'm excited about this as well because I love the genre and many of the films he chose are some of the kind of epic, like the best of the best anime films with regards to ratings and such. So mm -hmm. I'm excited to see quite a few of these that I have yet to um, experience. But with that being said, we are going to kick this thing off before we talk about Grave of the Fireflies we want to discuss a new release that is just hitting DVD and Blu-ray. It's called Mary and the Witch's Flower. And this is going to be a kind of a quick 
non-spoilery review from us. So don't have to turn us off yet if you haven't heard of this uh, because it's not been widely marketed. You probably haven't. What we want to do is tell you about it so that it's something you can seek out if it sounds interesting. And we're going to do this normally. Uh, we're going to start with a one-word takeaway and just have a kind of shortened conversation about it versus a longer conversation that we'll have about Grave of the Fireflies. Now, Mary and the Witch's Flower, the one thing you want to know about this film is it is a Studio Ghibli production. Had a very brief kind of theatrical run, I believe, late last year, or maybe it was early this year. And it's British. <laughs> so it's kind of different than anything I personally had ever seen. And with Patrick's very limited anime history, I'm sure it's not like anything he'd ever seen anime-wise. <laughs> For sure. Because <laughs> um, it is literally, it's an anime, but it's British people talking, and it, it is kind of jarring at first. So... Let's just get started with one more takeaways, and I guess I'll I'll lead us off uh, since I'm already talking. <laughs> Mine sure. is picturesque, Patrick. The the word that really jumped out at me was um, this one. Anything that related to the beauty of this picture, it is one of the most gorgeously animated films I've seen. And there's different anime styles, which is going to be something that's fun to track over your challenge. Because they're not all the same. And while I would call something like Your Name visually stunning and beautiful, this is an incredibly different kind of visually beautiful animation. It is so colorful and just so bright. It leaps off of the screen. And yet there's this contrast in the animation. Mary, the protagonist, has incredibly striking red hair. And yet when she's on screen, the backgrounds are almost like watercolor paintings. And so it really creates this visually appealing experience. So even when I wasn't engaged with the story, I always felt like I was enjoying this movie because it really was a joy to look at for me. I agree. It's definitely just something you could put on a wall at any given point. And um, I, I definitely noticed all that and the brightness of that, which I think is if the brightness is a character trait of anime, I don't know if it is at this point, but if it is, I'm excited to to see what is uh, in store over the next two or three months. For me, the, the word that comes to mind is imaginative. And I have seen a handful of anime features, like I said, mostly Miyazaki, Howl's Moving Castle comes to mind. And when I remember about that more than anything was not only Christian Bale voicing the main character, which was pretty fantastic, at least in the in the English dub version. Does he really? I've he only really heard the Japanese. Oh, man, I, I own it. You make me want to pop it in after this episode. You should. It's really good. May all your bacon burn. <laughs> I have a T-shirt that says that. Okay. I can't wear it anymore because I've lost so much weight. I'm really getting off topic. But I love that movie. <laughs> and I agree with your comparison and I'll shut up. Okay. <laughs> so when I'm watching this movie, one of the things that it reminded me of was the fact that you had this nice balance between reality and fantasy. I'm not a huge fan of fantasy in general. Um, you, If you kind of pull me into the Warcraft world, you lose me because I just I don't get into that kind of stuff. And I love the fact that this starts us out in the real world and leads us into this fantasy world, but in kind of a kind of a subtle way. It's not like a dramatic turn, at least not that I felt. I dig the creativity behind the art. Uh, there's so much in the scene when we are just watching Mary and um, the other characters interact that is just very subtle. But it's almost as if you got a bunch of kids together and you, and you said, hey, what kind of creatures do you think 
could live in this area, you know, in this particular scene. And they were like, what about a fire breathing squid? And they're like, that sounds great. And let's get some animators to draw that. And I think what you have is this background and this beautiful picturesque with this creativity behind it. You're not limited by your uh, real world perspective. And I think that the imagination is on full display, particularly in the middle part of the, uh, of the story. Yeah. I think you're nailing it because I had the same reaction and it started for me right away with the opening scene Mm -hmm. because it is just electrifying. It's so cool. We see what we believe is Mary uh, at the beginning and she is in this action packed moment trying to escape this looks like a castle and she's flying on a broom and like you said the fire breathing squid things are flying and chasing her and it's just it's such a cool way to start the movie off and it man it is gorgeous for me though i don't know that that's all the way a positive in this film i feel like it tends to almost set us up for an experience that we don't get there's this opening moment and then the film sort of takes a slower turn. Uh, and I feel like it sets up in a way that spends maybe almost half the film doing this world building. Then we kind of get a big climax at the end. I don't know. Did you feel that way at all? I did. You know, when you, when you have an opening sequence like that, you get a tone and then you get sort of an opposite tone or at least uh, what feels like a Tarantino maneuver where he's like, Oh, look what this happened. And then you feel like you're kind of going either back in time or you're transitioning to something that happened either way after this event or way before this event. And so it's intriguing, but the whole time you're thinking, okay, I want to get to that event again. I want to see what that was all about. So it sparks your curiosity. But at the same time, I think it leaves a little bit to be desired because it takes such a significantly long time to get to the actual climax of the film. Well, along with your imagination idea here, one of the things that also stuck out to me is I got this incredibly strong Harry Potter vibe. I did too. This movie. And I think that's the selling point I want to use to tell people to see this. I mean, this is a movie I like quite a bit. And so I'm, I'm definitely recommending that you check it out listeners it's beautiful. It is imaginative, but it also, it has a Harry Potter feel to it. It's got, we already mentioned Mary flying on a broom and it's got this college for witches. It's got familiars. Um, it actually predates Harry Potter though. So it's technically based on a British short story, I think called the little broomstick from 1971, a child or it's a children's novel. And I find that interesting, and it makes me wonder if uh, J.K. Rowling had any influence or inspiration from that same tw- that same uh, short story. <laughs> I think with the with the British angle on it, maybe she had some influence there because obviously the movie came out. It was voiced by Japanese actors, and then the the sub or the dubbed voices now became British. So maybe she had a little influence. She's like, "This reminds me of my own world. Let's add some British people in there." Yeah, and I think it's fun because the filmmakers are pretty clearly aware that their movie is a lot like Harry Potter. They they make some nods to it at times. Uh, you know, when you have a cat as a familiar, it makes you think of Hermione and Crookshanks. Mm-hmm. And then there's there's one particular scene where we see uh, a boy in big 
round glasses who is having a hard time trying to get on his broomstick. And that's just calls back to, you know, Harry's first attempt at riding a broom right. in a big way. Well, it, it, what else did you love or, or not like about this one? Well, Anything? the character, the characters were really, really fun. I don't know that there was a character in this movie that I didn't like. Um, in terms of just the, the, the care, the character enjoyment. I mean, there were obviously characters I didn't like because they were bad, uh, or evil or antagonists, but I really, I gravitated. Um, I think it is it Zebedee or no, it's Flanagan Flanagan. It's the thing. I can't remember the creature, but he's got this really great Irish accent and he's in charge of all the brooms. And, and there's a moment where she, uh, she comes into the college and she's really, uh, disoriented and, and, He's like, well, now I've got to clean all that up. And I think it's his accent along with the way he interacts with her so matter-of-factly that makes him just really clever, really fun. But I think all of the all the characters seem to fit really well in terms of progressing the story. I don't feel like there was a character that was like, ah, eh, that's forgettable. Maybe the maybe the older women at the very beginning, or at least one of them, but but I loved all the characters pretty much. Well, I was distracted because there's these cats in this movie. And anyone who knows me knows that I have a great love of felines. And there are two, one of which is incredibly central to the story. He's a black cat named Tib who looks almost identical to my own cat Strider. And I love how these cats are moved into the story. There's even a cat love story kind of subplot that happens in this film. It's just so touching. Um, but yeah, I, I even paused the movie a few times and took screenshots and sent them to my daughter because it, the animation is so good and the cats look so great. So if you like cats, this might be the one for you. They have incredibly detailed facial expressions, uh, which is, sure. yeah, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun to watch. I love, there's one particular scene that I gravitated towards and thought about you when she initially uh, activates the broomstick and he hops on and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is not going to bode well for him. And you see him grabbing the bristles of the broom and I, could, I couldn't see his face, but I could just imagine him going, oh my gosh, what is happening? And it just was incredibly funny. It really was. And it's made even more funny. Sorry, slight spoiler, by another scene that pairs with that later in the film where he's got a leash and he's tied to the broomstick. I don't know if you noticed <laughs> yeah. that. But yes, I doing that. He actually has this like tie to him, this rope, so yeah. that he can't like fall off again. It's pretty, so it's pretty great. So good. Well, we liked it. I, I definitely would. You recommend them watching yeah, it? I absolutely, would. absolutely. In fact, from a from an anime point of view, if you're a noob like me, this is kind of a nice softball, if you will, where you have. Um, put it. Maybe, yeah, it's it's not true. It, I don't want to call it true anime. It's it's anime style for sure, but it's a it's a great little kid story. Yeah, it, it makes me think of a second one-word takeaway that we could use to describe it, and that is accessible. It is accessible. Go. It is yeah. a great transitional type of film between the normal traditional anime style and American animation type films, I think. So, yeah, check this one out. Well, time to get into our main review. And, Patrick, when I – this first of all, spoiler alert, okay? Yeah. We're going to talk about Grave of the Fireflies. This is an older film from the late 80s. And I'm blanking on, I didn't even write down the director's name. I feel terrible. He recently passed away. So um, RIP him. He's great uh, and fantastic animated career. But we are going to talk about this film in depth. So if you haven't seen this one, go check it out. And then 
cry a lot and come back and listen to us. Now, before we do start, though, I want to tell you, Patrick, whenever I first heard the name of this film, all I could think about is this song by Owl City called Fireflies. Yeah, (laughs) I thought about that, too. (laughs) Which is cool because it is immensely happier as an experience to think about. Well, I think an insurance convention is immensely happier than this movie. It's just like, I mean, this is, this is like borderline Manchester by the sea depressing. <laughs> it is. Do you want to kick us off with your one word takeaway? Yeah. The thing about not having a lot of knowledge of these movies that I picked, even though a lot of them are critically acclaimed, um, is that I don't really know what the stories are about. And so I'm watching this and I'm going, okay. I'm okay with a serious movie. And when I got to the end or even about halfway through, I'm like, wow, the only word I can think of is abrupt. And what I mean by that is the, the tone of the movie is very somber. And if that's giving it a light kind of word description, but it's also, it's one of those movies that moves a lot. So we're in one scene and then a minute later we're in another scene and then we're in another scene And honestly, it bothered me because I was like, this doesn't feel like it flows. It feels like it's just a series of scenes put together that makes sense. But I think that was the intent of this director and his creative team is to kind of give us that feeling of not being settled. I mean, our two main characters the whole time feel like they're on the run. They feel like they're not supposed to be in the place they are. They're either not wanted or they're not comfortable there. And so I think that 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 idea of being abrupt, that idea of just moving so fast and kicking us from place to place and scene to scene was very intentional. But I'm still not sure if I liked it or not. Um, I think it worked well for the movie, but it's kind of hard to tell when... I mean, the movie's it makes me sad and it makes me think about a lot of stuff that I probably should. So I think it's effective in that way, but maybe the, the way in which the story was told in that particular type wasn't quite what I anticipated or enjoyed. So I'm still kind of thinking about that. Interesting. Well, for those that have seen this film, you may completely agree with Patrick or maybe it flowed better for you, but I think a hundred percent of you are going to agree with my one word takeaway. And that is, heartbreaking. This is a film that deals with the tragedy of war in a very intimate, raw way. Right from the first scene, it's heartbreaking. It shows us the death of Seda, who's going to be our main character. And it puts us in a place that we have to understand that this deteriorate we're going to see the deterioration of his life right we know from the beginning that this isn't going to end well so right off the bat when he pops out of this gumdrop tin as a ghost with his sister uh, setsua who we don't even know who she is yet you can tell what the story is going to do and it captures this pain and struggling of children hurting in a way that I don't know that I've ever experienced before. It's possibly softened somewhat, I think, due to the animated style of the movie, the fact that it's animation. I mean, it it still hits me very, very hard, 
but it's not in the way that an overly dramatized live production would. But it's definitely heartbreaking, um, and it and it hurt my soul the entire time that I was watching it, and truly, it left me kind of feeling like a crumpled mess, to be honest. Yeah, I remember the, um, and I wasn't quite sure how to take this, but then I thought about it when you you sent me a message and you and you said, "Hey, just wanted to say thanks for picking picking this movie. This was really great," and your your tone was completely. Just that, just very sarcasm. Yes. Yeah. And had I known it was going to be this, I wouldn't have put this on first on my list in terms of like, Hey, let's get into anime. What are we going to do? Oh, we're going to talk about a, a war movie and disaster and somberness based on actual events. Great. That's fantastic. At the same time though, it's a nice way to kick off just the impact that anime could have to its audience and the message that it can portray. So Half a thumb up for that, maybe? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know that you had mentioned to me Roger Ebert's quote about this particular movie. Um, The director is Takahata, by the way. I don't know if it's Isao or Isao Takahata. I don't know how to pronounce that. It's always tough with Japanese names, so hopefully we'll get some slack there. But he definitely was an acclaimed director, and this was his most well-known film, as far as I've known. But yeah, you had talked to me some about Roger Ebert's review, which we sometimes reference because he liked to think in a similar terms to us. Yes. And he had a really fantastic quote from his review saying, uh, and I'm going to quote this grave of the fireflies is an emotional experience. So powerful that it forces a rethinking of animation. Since the earliest days, most animated films have been quote cartoons for children and families. Recent animated features, such as the lion King princess Mononoke and the iron giant have touched on more serious themes and the toy story movies and classes like Bambi have had moments that moved some audience members to tears, but these films exist within safe confines. They inspire tears, but not grief. And this is the thing that stood out to me. He says grave of the fireflies is a powerful dramatic film that happens to be animated. You know, when we were talking to Adam Rakoff uh, a couple of months ago, when we were interviewing him, one of the things that fascinated me was seeing his first animated short that he did in college. It's not mind blowing, but it tells a story and it uses animation as a means to do that. And I remember us having the conversation about the, the level of creativity that animation has these days and what it does in order to tell big stories. It doesn't have to be necessarily catered to children. Um, and, and that's probably been the hardest thing about the world of animation is it's by default thought of as a children's genre. And so Grave of the Firefly really challenges that. I think The Lion King was my first entrance into understanding that kind of seriousness, that kind of adult type theme that existed in animation. And I agree with Ebert that things like that, Toy Story, have a safe confine. Whereas this, I can't think of a moment in this movie or a series of moments that are happy. I feel like they're 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 like nuggets here and there, but when you start out with seeing a dead body and then you see these ghosts moving on a train and I guess going to wherever they're supposed to be going. And then we go back however many years or however many weeks to seeing the same character and we know what his fate's going to be. Oh my gosh. It's just tragic because we're just waiting for that to happen. We're, we're, we're looking at this and going, 
okay, he's not going to survive. We know what his death's going to be. How is he going to get there? So already we're set up for a serious motif and a serious tone that is very much intentional because the, I believe the director's saying this is something to take seriously. This really happened. And we're trying to give you context of why this is an important story to tell. Totally agree. And I, I think that the thing about that animation style, a little bit of what I was alluding to in my one word takeaway is that it's dramatic and it doesn't have the typical anime flair. It's so, not eccentric. There's right. no eccentricness to it. When you think of anime, you think of exaggerated facial expressions. None of that exists here. And this is much more like an American facial expression type of film when it comes to animation. And it looks the same visually from a, a landscape perspective, but it's the way that the characters emote. It's, it's much more realistic to me than exaggerated. Yeah, the interesting thing about this is that Mary in The Witch's Flower does the complete opposite, where we have those anime expressions. We have those wide faces because it's a lighter tone, but it's particularly with the British dubbed voices, it's almost the opposite feeling that we get. Now, it's that doesn't make the tone. I mean, they're not there's a correlation, but that's not connected that the tones are the reason the tones are that way is because of those things. But it's interesting that Grave of the Fireflies doesn't use the standard anime elements to tell its story, that it's simply just the animation itself, but without all that eccentricness, all without that exaggeration. Yeah. Now you did mention the, what I had talked about as well about the fact that we kind of tell this story knowing the ending. And so I was wondering how that works for you. And do you think it, do you think it helps soften the blow somewhat of knowing what the character's fates are before we get there? Or do you think it does the opposite? Do you think it makes it harder to watch the entire journey knowing that any brief respite they get isn't going to ultimately matter? How do yeah. you how do you figure that? Well, I think the journey is the key word there. And that's what we're meant to focus on is the ending isn't as important as the path to get there. And when we see how beat up he is and how run down and how he dies, it's less important than understanding what it took to get there and how much suffering he did prior to that. Because over the course of the movie, what we see is a slow hopelessness start to set in. Like he, at the very beginning, I think he's, well, he, I think what we see is the stages of grief, essentially, because we see his mom, and this is probably one of the most horrific scenes for me, was the the air raids happen, and he's separated from his family, he's got his sister with him, and he finds out that his mom is at the school, and he walks in, and she is just covered in bandages, and you could see the burns from I guess the explosion or whatever it is, or a fire and finding out that she died. This is kind of where the abrupt word comes in. I didn't see him react. It was almost so matter of fact, my mom died. Okay. Well, I need to get my sister over to our aunts. And it didn't occur to me until later on when there's this breakdown moment, how he was trying to hold that in and how he was, really just trying to stay strong for his sister. So for me, the ending wasn't really 
as important as the journey to get there. And so I was okay with that. It didn't enhance the, the overall movie. I think had the, had we seen how it ended at the end of the movie, I don't think it would have impacted my experience of it. Okay. Yeah. I think it definitely impacted mine. Um, knowing what was going to happen made it more tragic for me than it would going through it the first time. Now it's not unlike rewatching a movie. So once you've seen a movie through the first time, anytime you rewatch it, you know what the story is. So you're watching it with this understanding of who's going to die or how it's going to ultimately resolve. And that's what this one did. It was like rewatching a movie, only watching it for the first time in a sense. And it did affect me emotionally because every step of the way when they would be gifted rice or they would have a win, a small victory, I knew that we were just building to that moment of pain and of death. And if I have any kind of small criticism of the film, and maybe actually it's not small. It's the thing that keeps me from making this a five-star film. Honestly, it's the thing that keeps it from being like the all-time great for me because I think it is so powerful, but I, I do believe I would have responded so much more had I not known that going into it, that I not known we were retelling their story until the end. So it, it did affect me kind of in a negative way, I guess. I'm not saying I wasn't emotionally, you know, evoked. I, I was sad and I was depressed the whole time. It takes a little bit of that punch away because you know where it's going. Well, but I think because you know where it's going, you almost translate the futility of everything they're doing. I mean, you know that they're both going to be dead at some point and that she goes before he does, which is incredibly tragic in my opinion, because he's been taking care of her, especially when you see throughout the movie that that's what his responsibility is, is to take care of her. And so when you have that futility in your mind, you start realizing it about halfway through like, Oh, they're not going to make it. And so you ask the question, well, what's the point of that? Why are they? And you're, but then you step back and you go, we're watching this play out for them and they don't know they're going to die. They don't know what their fate is. And so we're almost becoming this omnipotent um, observer, just watching them live life. And we're sort of exploring this holding on to as much hope or as little hope as you have left throughout this whole sequence of events. Totally agree. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. Well, I guess for me, it's, it's an unfortunate response of just being a viewer and always having in the back of my, it's like watching a Marvel movie. Okay. Right. People have complained about infinity war, which came out recently and the ending of that movie. They know some of what's going to happen based on knowledge of sequels that already exist. So such and such character may have had a fate in that movie that doesn't actually apply long-term because they know that character's coming back. And I had a similar response where I was simultaneously trying to engage with what you're talking about and feel that futility of their journey. But at the same time, I was having the unengaged, like kind of God view of the movie where I was like, just, I was always looking, waiting for the shoe to drop. So I was, I was watching it with an expectation instead of a reaction. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I thought my, my whole time through this, that was in the back of my mind. Like when's, when's he going to 
come to his fate? When's she going to come to her fate? What, when's How's that going to happen? happen? Yeah. And, and I'm really looking more like at timestamps. I'm like, okay, well, we got 30 minutes left. Exactly. Is it going to happen? When's it going to happen? And so that can definitely be a distraction, but I think there's, there's also a lot of power in showing us the ending <clears throat> and then showing us the journey to that. 13 Reasons Why is a fantastic example of that. So we're most Quentin Tarantino movies, I guess, in some ways. <laughs> but there's something, there's something really good about showing us the end so that we can place importance on the journey, whether it's a marriage or a death or, or whatever. And so it's one of those things that just is incredibly, uh, it, can be a, it can be a strength or a weakness. Yeah. Well, one of the things that really did resonate with me is just the fact that we condensed an entire wartime experience down to two characters. We don't deal with what's happening all across the land. I mean, they hear snippets of it here and there when he's asking about his dad, who's off in the Navy. We see maybe a couple newspaper clipping type things, but it's all about this brother and the sister. And yet in keeping that bigger perspective, but not letting us focus on it, it's, it's so much more intimate and meaningful because you really sense what individuals lost. And so knowing that this is a matter of probably millions of lives lost, it makes you think, my gosh, not only is there millions of lives lost, which is hard, hard enough to think about, but like they all kind of had to go through some, not all, because many of them probably died in bomb blasts, but so many of them probably went through a struggle similar to Seda and Setsua of yeah. dying of starvation and not having enough resources to live, simply literally being unable to survive on the land. Yeah, there's there's definitely an emphasis on individualism in this movie as opposed to telling a history story. I mean, this is what was happening was the U.S. was bombing Japan. And that's a fact. That's a historical fact. And as a U.S. citizen, I know that fact. Watching this movie gives me more information that causes me to rethink some things. Uh, there's a there's a quote by a guy named Adolf Eichmann who is considered one of the proponents of the the Holocaust. And he's quoted as saying, 100 dead are a catastrophe. A million dead are a statistic. And there's some real truth to that, that when you start seeing numbers on a screen or on a newscast and you start seeing high numbers like that, you start thinking, okay, well, what am I supposed to do with that? As opposed to saying a mother and daughter were found dead in their home, as opposed to, a hundred thousand were bombed by, you know, whatever this and that it's, it puts us in a place of real empathy for the characters that we're walking along this journey with. It's not just that we care about these two individual characters. We care about the individuals on this other side of the world in this moment. It reminded me a lot of the book thief that used world war two and the Holocaust in particular as a backdrop, but our main character was just a German citizen living her life and just being casual about it. But the backdrop had an effect on her. And I think that we have two individuals who are trying to move on. Air raids are becoming commonplace now, which is a scary thing to think about that catastrophes like that are just got to keep a lookout. Like you have, you know, a thunderstorm warning. And so when we think about things on an individual level, I think it really allows us to have that empathy that we're supposed to have for people 
that we will never meet or never see their faces. And so I think this gives a face to the Japanese as a whole. It does. Absolutely. And so I think as Americans, it is important for us to see this perspective, even if it's depicted through film and not necessarily a historical retelling, because in a sense, this is, uh, it's also based on a book who was written by a man who lived this situation with his sister and trying to survive after his city was bombed and not to make a political statement, but it, it should be in our minds when we're choosing whether or not to give our support to the future bombing of other nations in wartime or not. Uh, it, it always makes me think of when we, when we cover war films, how warfare these days has changed so much, you know, it used to be more, uh, Braveheart style. You right. lined up, thousands of people on two different hillsides and then you ran at each other <laughs> and you face to face fought. Now it's all about how far away can we get from you? How, how can we kill you from another continent versus having to get anywhere close? And it desensitizes, which is the word I thought of when you said the whole thing about millions versus hundreds, it desensitizes. Absolutely. And it's sad. It's, it's almost sad. It's almost a gaming environment at that point. I mean, when you have, that's true. Yeah. When you, when you have, you have drones or whatever they're called now moving through and they're doing the job of a person in the airplane. You can justify that by saying, well, we don't want to risk the life of the person in the aircraft. And I'm like, yeah, that's not quite a true statement. You're trying to remove yourself from the situation so that there is no personal reaction. So that if a guy in an F-15 is flying by and he sees a town full of citizens that are not supposed to get bombed i mean he might hesitate and is that good or is that bad that's a question for probably another conversation but at the very least what grave does is it allows us to see something different and to at least give second thought or give pause to the decisions we make whether it's opinions about people that we don't understand based on cultural stereotypes or whatever but in particular we see the boots on the ground reaction of the people, the the effect of what, in this case, an air raid does. To yeah, and I want to I want to talk about that some about living versus surviving. Okay, and not just Seda and Sesua, but some of the people that they have to interact with, specifically their aunt. Which <sighs> good, okay, good, because I <laughs> I'm glad that you made that sound because <laughs> that is how I felt. I was angry, and I think I'm supposed to be. But as the film went on, I came to more of a middle ground, I think, on her. And so I'm wondering where your thoughts are, because here's the thing. She's impossible to like. They end up with her, their children, and I think you and I both would agree her job as a, an adult would be to take them in and take care of them no matter what it costs, right? Bring them into her life, bring them into her home. The first moment when they are being told by her, hey, you could sell this stuff and get some rice, and then she wants to take a cut of it as if she earned it somehow or owns it, mm -hmm. I kind of got annoyed. And then later, when she tries to threaten them with not making dinner, I got mad, really mad. Now, it works because it gives us an awesome opportunity to see Seta being resourceful mm -hmm. he buys a little stove and we see 
some of his resolution and not resolution determination. Mm -hmm. And we get to contrast his determination versus the ant. And I'm sure that this really happened. I think that's probably what makes me the most angry, Patrick, is that people are looking out for themselves. They're trying to all survive. And it's how different people do that. There's also a big fight with a farmer over Mm -hmm. some, some potatoes and some carrots and stuff. Yeah. I'm, in the same camp you are with regards to the ants and what helped me resolve it a little bit. I still think she's a jerk is the fact that I jokingly say this, but not really that everybody that we see is hangry (laughs) people. There's a limited amount of food that exists in these places. And it's truth. I mean, there's some hangriness that goes on and what I, where I sympathize with, with her aunt, with his aunt is the fact that, she wants anyone living with her to not be a, a burden or a leech, a consumer. Everyone needs to contribute. And she's always pushing him to do something. Why aren't you going to school? Why aren't you doing this? You need to, you need to pull your own weight. And I think in this case, she wasn't meant to be benevolent. She was meant to be just a roof for him and his sister for him and Sitsawood to, to live under. But it was important for them, according to her to understand that they have to contribute in some way, shape or form. Um, from the very beginning, she has those packages that she's looking through. And she said, it's a good thing that your dad's in the Navy. You guys get the best of everything. And then she just starts taking it away. And so there's a feeling of entitlement. And I think it comes from the fact that she's been told you have to take care of these kids. And so I think of her less like an evil stepmother and more of maybe a house. I don't know, like a miss, miss Hannigan type thing from Annie where it's a requirement. She is under an obligation to do this. And so she's not necessarily taking her cut because it's mean. She's taking her cut because look, these kids are taking resources away. You know, every bowl of rice that she gives to them is one less bowl than she can give to her immediate family who are working for those things. So in some ways I do sympathize with her at the end of it all though. I don't like her. (laughs) So good. I'm glad you nailed exactly why I had a slight amount of empathy for her as well. So I'm glad that we kind of saw that character the same way. And at the end of the day, we both would agree no, not okay. Not good enough. <laughs> Do more. <laughs> um, it reminds me a lot of just the way that I see the world today and call me cynical, but maybe I just don't know all the right people. There's a lot of selfishness in this world. And apparently there was in World War II time as well, because when the going gets tough, it's a me first life. And mm-hmm. we're going to, we're going to look out for number one and number one A and number one B. And, um, and that's tough. It's something I struggle with and, and I know others do, but I love that this film makes us kind of through this relationship with the Anne, it makes us confront that because it made me think about it. And it made me wonder like even just day to day life, how I treat other people. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. Yeah. The, the one big scene, I, we're not doing a connecting point, but in kind of like trying to go toward a wrap up here, I wanted to bring this moment up because this would be mine if we were doing a connecting point. And that's just the scene that gives us the title. So I wanted to get your thoughts on it because it was the moment when I finally lost it and the knowledge of what was going to happen in the end kind of fell away from me. 
and it got less of a big deal. I was engaged fully at this point. And that's when Setsua makes her grave for the Fireflies. And you talked about this earlier. This is that moment where Seda finally, like, I mean, gosh, months later, however long it is, lets it out and cries over his mom's death. Mm -hmm. This, to me, was very much like a burial for the mother. That's the metaphor I took away, but I bet you there's more to it than that, and I wondered what you came away with. For me, it was really more like closure and acceptance. If we're talking about grief, I don't necessarily want to put the five stages in the film and try to dissect them that way, but I feel like this was sort of acceptance in in some ways because I th- what Seda was doing was compartmentalizing, and he was compartmentalizing because he had to survive. He had to take care of his sister. And for me, as sad as this moment was, I felt like it was such a good release of emotion for him to be able to finally cope with the fact that his mom's gone. And it helped resolve a lot of the issues that I had in the movie leading up to this because it was definitely earned. I think that it helped give translation to some of the other events that took place, why he acted the way he did. Um, And it's, it's a beautifully sincere moment it's one that i think feels very honest and i enjoyed it for the sake of that for the the sake of it feeling very authentic and i love that setua or setuko makes a a grave is it setua or setuko i cannot remember it's (laughs) what her name is we're here at the end of the podcast and we're going to confront this i wrote down setua Okay. I think it's Setsuko. I think I'm wrong. Okay. Well, in any case, his sister. We're just dumb Americans. That's what we are. (laughs) are. I don't have time to go back and edit it. Sorry, folks. Her making, her making that grave, I think was her way of, of finding closure with her mom's loss because she didn't get a chance to either. I mean, she cried and when she found out, but I think this was her way of saying, I would, this is how I'd want to end it and, and end it in a way that was very, uh, very poignant and very sincere. Yeah. I love that you said it was realistic and kind of like in character for her age as well. When she says, why do fireflies have to die so soon? Like mm-hmm. I think she gets it, but she doesn't fully get it. And it's such a childlike metaphor reference to the death of her mom Yeah, and the death of everybody around her. You know, the, the, what she's experiencing, what she's going through that she as a child can't fully grasp, but is clearly seeing happen in real time in the landscape with, you know, hundreds and thousands of people, not just her own mom. So, well, anything else that you wanted to note before we wrap it up? I'm excited to watch more anime that's not sad. So let's hope for that. (laughs) Well, I think. Going through your list, we're going to be somewhat okay, but I know that there are some more that definitely will evoke some tears. Okay. Not anything like this. I had heard so much about this movie, not details, but I'd heard over and over, like, this movie will crush your soul. This movie is so sad. Make sure you have the tissues ready. And everybody was right. That was. I did not hear that. I did not hear any of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, lucky you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. 
Well, man, where can people find you online if they want to continue the conversation or check in with you about your summer of anime? Right. So you can check in with me on Twitter and Facebook. I'm at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H if you want to continue this conversation or whatever. I will also have an ongoing blog post on the website. As I watch these movies, I'll give a little time capsule review. Not quite sure what the details are going to be, but I'll try to keep it spoiler free. That way, if you're interested in the movie, you're not given major plot points that might diffuse your uh, your enjoyment of that. Uh, this coming Sunday, our next episode, we're going to have Adam Rakoff back on the show. We've been wanting to have him on just as a standard guest and not interviewing him necessarily. And we're going to be talking about the 1980s classic, The Karate Kid. I'm really excited about that, primarily because YouTube Red just released their original TV series, Cobra Kai. So we'll be doing a little bit of in-depth talk about the very first episode there with him and then lead into uh, The Karate Kid full review. Yeah, that's going to be fun. We're all going to do crane kicks, too, and then post it on the website. We're the the best around. Nothing's going to ever keep us down, okay? Oh, boy, this is going to be fun, just like all the 80s episodes. (laughs) Well, if you'd like to connect with me, listeners, you can always do that on Twitter at Aaron or through the official Twitter account for Film. And you can find us both in the Facebook group, our discussion area, where we have a lot of listeners who talk about movies all day, every day, throughout the week, throughout the month. And it's a great place to come and just enjoy getting to know other cinephiles, people who love blockbusters, people who love classics, and getting to make some new friends that love movies too. If you like the show and you enjoy what you hear, we'd love for you to leave us a review as well on iTunes, on Google Play, on Stitcher, on Spotify, anywhere you listen to the podcast. The more reviews you leave, the more we move up, the more we get noticed, and the more listeners can find us and ultimately, hopefully, join the community and join the conversation. So it's been a good time, Patrick. I can't wait for the next one. Listeners, until next time, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.